Thank you very much. Good morning. So I'm so, uh, I'm so excited about today, more than I know how to tell you really, because uh, I get to introduce you to one of my closest friends in the world, and it's just so exciting to kind of watch the worlds uh, kind of merge here. So Jared McKenna is a, a globally award-winning peace activist, and um, I thought this is, makes the best bio ever. This past week, we got to spend a really wonderful time. We were in a little town called Clinton, Tennessee, uh, for the Proctor Institute, which is this really extraordinary time reflecting on issues of race and racial justice and reconciliation. It's really, really wonderful. And part of what was so um, remarkable about that is that we were really sitting at the feet of some of the luminaries of the civil rights movement, people like uh, the Reverend James Lawson, who's 87 now, really kind of the architect of the movement. King drew a lot from him. Uh, people like Otis Moss Jr., who's now 81. It's really, really wonderful. But all this to say that in our session the other day, uh, Reverend James Lawson commented on Jared, and he called you an expert in nonviolent action. Expert. That's a lot to live up to. It is. It is. It's serious. Um, I don't want to steal his thunder because I want Jared to share about this at length, but uh, First Home Project in Australia um, is doing such incredible work with refugees, and not only both what they're doing in that local community, but the way that really they've seen... um, massive change uh, legally in terms of just structures and systems. Um, I'm I'm not going to jump into that yet because I want you to share more, but it's really, really remarkable the work that Jared's doing in Australia. And I got to come and witness all this in person in March. Uh, Jared was gracious enough to invite me in to come and speak and do a retreat for their church. He's also teaching pastor at West City Church in Perth. And we just had the most amazing weekend and getting to witness what they were doing in person was just so phenomenal. And part of why I'm so excited that Jared's here beyond the fact that he's so good for my soul, um, just kind of the, this rich time that we're having together, is, uh, you know, I don't know, I just feel like the Lord's doing a lot in me, and I feel like he's stirring up a lot in us as a community in terms of really talking and reflecting a lot these days and praying a lot these days about the relationship between our faith and social action, where God's calling us to affect change in our own community. So I want Jared to really be able to speak in that as well. So we're going to have a good time. This is very much going to be a conversation this morning. But I would love it, actually, as usual, if we could kind of read our text first. If you'd stand with me for our reading from the Gospels. And Jared, would you read for us our text from Matthew, and then we'll uh, we'll dive right in. Well, hopefully you won't need the gift of interpretation, but I'll try and read it anyway. This isn't a speech impediment. This is how I speak. (laughs) Let's come before the Holy Word. Matthew. The 15th chapter, starting at verse 21. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from the vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering from a terrible demon possession. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and she knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and to toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the table of their master. Then Jesus answered, woman, you have great faith. Your request, it's granted. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. 
This is the gospel of our Lord. Would you, let's remain standing. Would you pray with me for just a moment? Lord, we're so grateful today just for the gift of your presence, mm. for the gift of each other. I'm so thankful for this community, and I'm thankful for the ways that, um, just all the ways that Jared has become such a, a soul brother to me, and uh, just the ways that you've connected us. It's such a beautiful thing, uh, just for us all to be gathered here today. We just ask now, uh, Lord, that truly you would soften our hearts and open our minds. Mm. I pray that you would speak to us in a way that would be clear and provocative. I pray that you would lower our defenses so that you could challenge us, speak into us, yes. comfort us, mm. uh, disturb us. You truly are the Lord of your church, and we invite you, Jesus, to take your rightful place in our hearts and our lives, to speak to us, to direct us, to conform us to your word, and most of all, that through this encounter, through the proclamation of your word, that you would transform us more into the likeness of your son. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, amen. amen. You can grab a seat. Amen. So first of all, I think it's hilarious that Jared from Australia has connected me with all these wonderful people this past week in Tennessee, which is awesome. <laughs> and now, watch this, uh, with his little bit of time in the United States, has elected to spend an entire week here in Tulsa. How cool is that? <laughs> How are you liking it so far, Jared? Are you feeling... The Tulsa vibe? I mean, not just this morning. And this morning, where's the worship team? That, that, was, that really ministered to me. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I know we're all new friends, but um, just between us and the podcast, I'm going through one of the hardest seasons of my life. And this morning really ministered to me. Not just like your excellence in like your musical ability, that's clean and clear to everyone, but your hearts for worship. And to have people that serve this community in such way that not only are they that gifted and that talented, but they desire the Holy Spirit. And you can feel that hunger for his glory to transform our earth. That ministered to me this morning. I mean, you lot know your pastor and how incredible he is. By the way, if this whole thing doesn't work out, we want him. Like uh, my, my lead pastor and I'm the teaching pastor, we've already said, John, if you just want to, you know, bring sanctuary down to Perth and... Settle down there. We'd, we'd, love to, we'd love to have you. And you know how gifted a teacher he is, and that's why you've called him. But um, the thing I love about this brother is he wants to follow Jesus. I mean, that shouldn't be a surprise in our preachers, but sometimes it is. <laughs> but he wants to follow Jesus. And his humility this week um, in actually confessing how much he does have to learn as we sat at the feet of these greats, like this incredible tradition, this beautiful witness to the way of Jesus that has shaped this country, that it is so needed today in terms of not just Martin King and not just Rosa Parks, but the hundreds of thousands of unnamed people who went the way of Jesus and have seen this land transformed, that speaks to me. So finally, the other thing that ministered to me in ridiculous ways is when, and people at home said, really? Tulsa, you haven't had a holiday for a while, Jared. You're going you're gonna to spend a week in I don't know anything about Tulsa. And you'd expect that from, like, Perth, Australia, right? But when I got here to the U.S. and we were with people and people said, really? <laughs> Tulsa. And so I, I didn't know what to expect. And, like, the beauty of the Art Deco, the architecture here is incredible. But you, you know what ministered to me, what spoke to me is I got off the plane and went to pick up my bag. And there is the great Woody Guthrie on the wall. And, and I'm like, no way. This is the home of Woody Guthrie. My, my, and 
of course, like the, the graffiti that was there, had him with uh, his weapon of choice, the guitar, with that famous sticker, you know the sticker? This machine. And so as we open up God's machine that kills fascists, if you're uncomfortable with that violent metaphors of Revelation 19, our Lord, his weapon comes from his mouth, it's his tongue. He's dressed in blood before he goes into the battle because it's the blood from the cross that has covered all of us. And he has victory over his enemies, not through a sword in his hand, but the sword of his trunk, the very word of God. And so I'm looking forward to the fascists in us dying today as we open up God's world and explore what it is for broken, problematic sinners like us to open to the healing grace that often comes from the outsider. And we've already started. We're, we're like, we're, Boom, we're, I was about to say, we're you gonna just do an ultra call now. If you want it, no, no, no. Oh, from Woody right. Guthrie to Revelation 19, and Boom. bam. Like, that was, because if, that if was your awesome. guest preaching, the book oh. of Revelation is all the pl- always the place you should open up. Yes, like, that's right. That's right. <laughs> it, is, um, it is really funny. Like, I love having him here so much. And like, when, he took, when I came to Perth, like, he took me all over the coast of Western Australia. So very... Very different, but it's exotic in its own way. Um, I do, before we jump into the, into the text, um, I did want to talk a little bit about, specifically about the work you're doing through First Home Project, mm. because I do think it's so extraordinary. Can you share just a little bit of the story of how all that's come to be and, and where it is now? Yeah, and it's a crazy story. And um, I was just trying to follow Jesus, and I've ended up here. And I'm not sure how that happened, and it was like... I paid Jono to say nice things about me at the start so that you'd like me. Um, but I'm not sure how I really ended up in a situation where I literally live with 17 refugees under the same roof. Um, people like you and me, whose only difference is they desperately need safety. People who have had family members killed in front of them and have come to places like your country and my country seeking a better start, much like my ancestors when they came to Australia because... My ancestors haven't been there for 40,000, 50,000, 60,000 years. Like, uh, I'm not Aboriginal. Mum's side of the family are Russian Jews. Dad's side of the family are Irish Catholic. First generation on Dad's side. And my family found a safe place in Australia. And there's something humbling that happens when we remember that why isn't a thing other than we've constructed? And I I know that's, that's weird to say, but... Why, in terms like Caucasian, like unless you're from Georgia, unless you're from the Caucasus, you can call yourself Caucasian. But it's, it's not actually a thing. I'm, I'm Jewish on mum's side. I'm Irish on dad's side. We've all got stories to hell and to tell. And there's that weird thing that happens when white people get in the room with people who aren't white, and suddenly we become white instead of what's our stories? Where are we from? And when we enter into the humility of the pain that is in our stories that we often cover up, so I know, like, uh, some of us have brown babies. Those who have brown babies in the room, I see that hand, I see that hand. Like, my son is now six foot four, and he's tall, dark, and handsome. I don't know what you're all thinking, but Jared, you're short, fair, and odd-looking. <laughs> That's a testimony for another day. But, but in this country... I would fear for my son being here because of some of the realities here. And to open that up and to enter into that humility is the journey that the Holy Spirit has taken me on. And so we now find ourselves uh, living with refugees and Jesus coming to us disguised, camouflaged. Christ camouflaged as the lost, the last, the least of these, the looked over and the left out. And Jesus comes to us needing a home. And I have the most beautiful privilege of being 
called to meet with Jesus in the face of these people who have survived so much and uh, it's changed my life. So John has come and visited with us and, and seen it in action. I know that um, some of you may have seen the documentary that the ABC made about our home and some of our life and, and ministry, um, but you're all welcome, seriously, particularly if you can surf and if you can't, I can teach you. Um, you you're welcome to come visit and just uh, get a sense of this beautiful thing that despite who I am, by God's grace, we've been caught up in. So maybe we'll tell some stories about that as we go along. Yeah, um, one more thing I would ask about that, and the documentary is beautiful. I'll make sure we get the link out online so you can watch that if you haven't seen it. It's so wonderful. But I'm wondering if you could say just a bit about, in addition to what you've done there in that local community, the way that the work there in Perth has really captured the imagination of Australia as a home. Like, can you say Mm. just a bit about just some of the broader change that's been affected culturally based on yeah. what you guys are doing, this one community yes. with 17 refugees. And I'll acknowledge I'm a stranger in a strange land. Like, um, so I, I do not mean to cause offence other than the gospel, and that offends me, and if you are in a space where you want to push Jesus off a hill, I understand that. Uh, this is his stuff, not mine. I don't necessarily like it. We're just being faithful to preach it. Um, and, and some of that means that... Um, Australia has an incredible history of white supremacy as well. You're not unique in that. The genocide of the first peoples in Australia and where we're in the place, not far from the Trail of Tears. I know that's a story that needs to be redeemed and those principalities and powers that govern our imaginations, that keep us from opening to the glory of the cross through the power of the resurrection, they're things that we need to excavate in our own soul, much like this woman who has a daughter who's demon-possessed. They're some of the demons that we need to wrestle with and find Jesus heal this very hour. And so Australia leads the world in cruelty towards refugees. Literally, uh, when we first started the Love Makes Away movement, there was uh, 1,200 and something children, children, children like our children, in indefinite detention offshore. That means their futures are frozen in jails when their only crime is seeking safety. And that's what my country does and my equivalent of the Democratic Party and my equivalent of the Republican Party. Both major parties in Australia support this kind of cruelty. And so the importance for the church to be in a church when there is a climate in my nation where these people are not seen as children of God but are seen as expendable political footballs where we create an us that isn't the us that's been given to us in our baptism but is an us that we find on our passports against a them. And uh, the thing about First Home Project is uh, we crowdsourced our mortgage. So instead of from a bank, it came from 21 individuals. First time it's been uh, done in history. It made the news in Albania and Kosovo. Uh, So it's become quite a story. And it's a place where people come to almost taste what a different future for my nation might look like. And what is the church other than a picture of God's future for the places we are? And so I, I still can't believe that... I get caught up in, in this stuff by God's grace. That the, the better you get to know me, you realise how problematic I actually am. And yet God works through people like us. I find that exciting. I, I know, like, I might be the only Pentecostal in the room, but that makes me want to stamp my feet. And uh, that's, that's an incredible, incredible privilege. Kind of just on the heels of even telling that story, we have got this very peculiar text today, which I think... Speaking of problematic things, I think it's one of the more challenging Jesus stories, while also an incredibly beautiful beautiful one, where you have this woman who comes to Jesus uh, looking for a miracle, 
And uh, maybe, it, Jared, if you could speak at first to just a little bit about who this woman is and where she comes from. Just something mm. of, her own, of, the, of the story that she, that she brings to us and brings to bear in this Jesus story. Mm. Yeah, this is an uncomfortable text for me. I'm not sure how you respond to this text. And this also, like Revelations 19, isn't necessarily a text when you show up in a, in a new church uh, in a foreign land that you really want to be preaching from. And yet, as, as we sat at Proctor this week and our friend and brother Otis Moss III, my goodness, that brother can preach. Like, you listen to his preaching and I don't feel worthy to read church announcements. Like, it, he's, it, it was incredible. And he actually was sharing from Mark's gospel about the Seraphonician woman which was the term that you'd use at the time, in the same way that you'd say, oh, I was an Aussie, I guess you'd say an Australian, um, uh, and I would say that you're an American, to use a term in Matthew's Gospel in this 15th chapter that she is a Canaanite is odd. It's like calling your Irish friend a Celt. It's like calling your Swedish friend a Viking. It's like calling your French friend a Gaul. It's calling back for ancient stories that are from elsewhere that Matthew doesn't want us to miss. So one of the first things we want to name about the uncomfortability of this text is it's drawing on other stories. So this isn't just a foreigner. This isn't just a woman. And let's put our Lord in his human context because if we're going to be orthodox, and I'm thoroughly orthodox, we need to acknowledge that Jesus is fully divine, but he is also fully human. And our Lord's context in chapter 14 is he's just lost who? Who has he just lost in his life that means so much to him? He's lost his cousin. He's lost his mentor. He's lost the man that baptized him. He's lost the one who's prepared the way for his ministry. He's lost someone that is so dear to him. And as my heart has broken for your nation, and I, like you, have watched, uh, whether it be on Twitter, on uh, Facebook, or just on the TV news, I've watched mothers and fathers and cousins weep over family members lost meaninglessly for no good purpose and it's just barbaric and grotesque and heartbreaking and our Lord mourns for his cousin and in fact he's just trying to get away he just needs some time and so he, he keeps trying to nick off and people keep following him and so he he's moved with compassion even in his grief and he feeds Five thousands, and there are 12 baskets left over. 12, of course, for anybody with a Jewish imagination, it represents what? That's right, the 12 tribes. There's signs of this is God caring, taking care and God's promise, and this is bread in the wilderness. This isn't the flesh pots of Egypt, that fast food, sugar-rich, uh, fatty goodness which Pharaoh promises, but this is this strange delivering mercy of food while we don't have anything. And then Jesus tries to nick off again. He even has to walk on water to, to try and get his own space. And, and Peter's like, can I come out on the water with you? And Jesus is like, like can, I, can I just get some space? Like, can I? And then we have this interaction. So that's the context for Jesus. And I'm not sure who your Canaanites are. I'm not sure who are those that you go, I've got pretty good backing for why you're not in and I'm not you and you're a distraction at best and a destination of my hate at worst. But as we open up this text, I encourage you to bring before the Holy Spirit what lurks in your psyche that needs to be redeemed of those that you consider Canaanites.
Well, and, um, and on that note, I mean, talk about Jesus coming into this moment where he is tired and weary and surely in grief over the loss of his cousin John the Baptist. So now we get to this text, though, and it's, it's pretty unusual in terms of the response of Jesus here. Hmm. When this woman uh, tells Jesus about her daughter who's tormented by a demon uh, and, and gets on her knees before him, asks the Lord, help me, his response is, it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs hmm. in a way that seems dismissive. She says, then, yes, Lord, uh, and I love just her, her spirit here, that this fiery, robust woman, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Mm. That's when Jesus answered, woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. What do you make of, of the response here, Jared? When- yeah, and, and I love this woman. Like uh, um, OM3 had this incredible line where he talks about, this is a woman who has a heart of worship and a hunger for liberation for her child. For her child. But maybe we can't understand what's going on in the text unless we step back into what was alive for the disciples and why the disciples are like, don't pay her no time. I believe that's an expression here. And so maybe we'll just read a little bit from Deuteronomy 7. Is yeah, that helpful? Great. Or is, are you also biblical literate that you're like, oh, of course, it's Deuteronomy 7. Quite like, <laughs> for, for those of us who've grown up in much more pagan lands where the Bible isn't read as readily as it is here, maybe we'll go Deuteronomy 7 for those who have the Holy Scripture with them. Deuteronomy 7. Starting at verse 1. This is what's going on to the disciples. And maybe those in your psyche... You have Bible verses to justify dismissing them at best and hating them at worst. Or maybe you have other sacred texts. In this nation, you have certain sacred texts that we don't have in Australia. They have amendments. Um, But moving on, uh, when the Lord your God brings you into the land, you are entering to possess it and drive out before the many nations. And then it has all those nations that we find so hard to read out. The Hittites, the Gerashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and Australians would add the Vegemites. <laughs> You're welcome. Seven nations, eight including the Vegemites, stronger than you. Seven, that's important. How many baskets were left over in the feeding of the 5,000? There was 12. Here there are seven. Hold that in mind. And the Lord your God has delivered you over to you. You have defeated them. Then you must destroy them totally. For those that miss it, this is Bible text proofing for genocide. I'm just going to put it as plainly as it is. Now, this shouldn't bother us because we're Christians. Our friends who are Jewish, they have rabbis that will help them read this through the life of Moses. But, of course, for us, we don't primarily read this text through the life of Moses. We read it through the life of Jesus. That's right. It's Sunday morning. We're in church. Jesus is probably the answer. It goes on, you must totally destroy them, make no treaty with them, and show them no mercy. This is a commandment from Yahweh to show them no mercy. Out of interest, Matthew makes reference to the Seraphonician woman and calls her what? A Canaanite. Guess who's mentioned in the list that you're to show no mercy, that you're to totally destroy so the disciples actually ignoring her is somewhat of a compassionate response because they've got biblical justification for doing more than ignoring. The text goes on and it frankly gets more disturbing. 
Do not intermarry with them. Do not give them your daughters to your sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away to follow and serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and you will quickly be destroyed. This is what you are to do. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down the Asherah poles and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord, your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the people on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. So there's this weird thing of a sense of chosenness and a validation of violence against our enemies. And Matthew makes it really clear that our Lord is approached by one of his enemies. And John, and maybe you can speak to a little bit about her social location, because I don't know about you, but there is a temptation in Australia. I'm sure you're all much more spiritual than us, so you wouldn't face this. But there is a temptation in Australia to read that Jesus is on our side, that yeah. Jesus is like us, that Jesus would be the same social location than me, that Jesus would share the same hues as me, that, that Jesus would be where I am. And the Canaanite woman is in the position of those who are not like me. And yet, what John is about to share, Pastor Jonathan, I've just seen They'd never heard my nickname before. I never had it before going to Perth. This is Jericho. <laughs> and, and that was me sharing in the gift of interpretation. It's Pastor Jonathan, a.k.a. Okay, Jono. A little bit about maybe for some of us, Jesus isn't as us, but we are as the Canaanites. Yeah. Um, well, one of the things that's interesting is that there's, um, in addition to this text in Matthew, there's a parallel text in Mark where uh, clearly seems to be the same story, where this woman comes, and there are a couple key words there, uh, specifically in Greek. In fact, when she talks about the kind of bed that her, that her daughter is lying on, the, the phrase there is specifically Greek. And there's, a couple, there's just a couple indications in Mark's gospel in particular that this woman actually might be a woman of some degree of affluence, that she's a person um, with a degree of, of money. So in that regard, she's not, she, she may even be sort of, we might say, upper class, and yet at the same time, because of her ancestry, because of the, the, being a descendant of the Canaanites, which one thing I, I thought, even reading that text again today, Jared, I mean, in addition to what we see of God's mercy here through Jesus, and this woman calling back to her heritage, and yet now she's being included, I mean, again, we'll get mm. to the kind of back and forth there in a minute, because I think that's fascinating, but not only the mercy in that text, um, they're, they're just, it's really interesting, I think, when we start to read the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus, because one of the things that we see, even kind of going into this, is that the fact that there is a Canaanite woman there at all who exists to even ask Jesus this question says something about the, you know, the historicity behind this, that mm. while in the text it would seem that God says wipe everybody out, they don't wipe everybody out. Mm. She's still here. The Canaan, there's a Canaanite woman still in the line mm. um, even to make this petition begin with. So I think that already uh, challenge us in terms of how we interpret that text in terms of very wooden fashion because again, they don't get wiped out. And um, so even that to begin with. But yeah, I just think like the fact that she comes to, to Jesus as a woman who um, by the standards, uh, as we said, of even the disciples who are good, devout Jews who understand their own faith and practice and would understand it, uh, not again, it's not a matter of like just some kind of random personal prejudice, would understand it to be uh, a matter of piety mm. that understanding their own sacred text. Yeah. Scriptures they've memorized, Torah yeah. law that they understand very deeply, especially be acquainted as they would be with the book of Deuteronomy, would seem to necessitate that they hold this woman. I just think that that's a point that really can't be overlooked, is that so, it's not just a matter of just some kind of random, ethnic, whatever, something just sort of picked up in the culture. They yeah. understand that they're practitioners of Scripture. That's right. And, and 
to, to make it plain, and again, I'm an Australian, so you take it as much as you, you, you want to pick up what I'm putting down, but Jesus has just lost someone very dear to him again, and he has grown up in a location where he saw people in his town crucified on hills nearby, where he served with his dad in towns nearby, in an economy that otherwise ripped off his people he is systematically discriminated against in his own land. He is treated like a second-class citizen in his own land. And here is a privileged outsider, and he is suffering so much. His people are suffering so much. His people are waiting for their liberator, their Messiah, their Saviour, that will actually see that transformed and turn around. They're waiting for their dream to become a reality for their people. And this outsider comes to him. And has the cheek to go, look, I know all this is going on for you, or maybe even I don't, but my daughter, she's demon-possessed. And she uses the language of his story, naming him like insiders can't name him, and says, son of David, son of the promised one from the line of David, the Messiah, have mercy on me. Directly transforming what Scripture commands Jesus not to do. And so his initial response is, I know what my priority is. I know what I'm about. I know what my mission is. I know what my vocation is. And Jono, um, years ago, preached this um, uh, series on uh, what learning like Jesus. Yeah, well, the series was actually on women in the Gospels. Mm. And I preached a message on this text. And it's, I remember it, it, it was weird. It's funny, like, when you preach a message, it sort of scandalizes yourself. Because I remember at the time <laughs> just thinking, like, I don't know what to do with this content. Uh, but I called the sermon, Learn Like Jesus. And <laughs> the, the point kind of being, if we take this text at face value, and of course we could conjecture about, in the same way, okay, like in the Old Testament, when you come to passages like where God says, I'm going to wipe everybody out, and then Moses is pleading the case of his people, and the text says, God changed his mind. So people then will debate, well, what's really happening there? Does God actually change his mind? Is this what God wanted all along? Mm. I mean, we can make the case that Jesus, you know, is, wants to be drawn out here, that mm. that's sort of the plan all along or whatever. But I think on some level, part of what it means to follow the example of Jesus as our Lord here is there really seems to be a way in which he allows him, his own openness to the woman seems to shape him. Yes. The, the woman changes him. Yeah. His encounter with the woman changes him. The very fact that Jesus goes from initial response of it's not good to, it's not good to give crumbs uh, to, the, to the dogs. It's so dismissive. I mean, and even like, there's various ways of trying to read that text, which I've read, where people, because we always want to get out from under these texts mm. we find problematic, want to try to lessen the impact of the phrase dogs. Like, there's really not a positive way to frame a, a, a reference as a dog, yeah. you know? I mean, even if you put it politely, because like in Greek there, it seems to be the minute form. Some people have kind of said, well, it seems to be more like puppies. Still, referring to a woman... A grown woman as a, as a little puppy, there's really not a way to kind of give that a positive reading. I mean, it seems dismissive. Yep. So the fact that then she pushes back on Jesus and, 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 and sort of insists, uh, well, well, even the dogs get to eat from the crumbs, mm. and that Jesus then marvels at her faith. Well, I just think what we see modeled there in Jesus is an openness to the other that, uh, that Jesus, if I can say it this way, allows to transform him. Mm. What, if part of, what if part of what it means to follow Jesus is that we also live that way with that kind of openness to the other 
in a way that impacts the way that we read the world, in a way that impacts the way that we read sacred texts? Mm. What, if follow, what if part of what it means to follow the Lord of the church, the Lord over these texts, is to follow this very example, mm. that even where there are cases where we might feel like we can proof text a thing and sort of justify our own attitudes and dispositions, that then reading this text through the lens of that Jesus means that we also have to be, make ourselves available to that same kind of challenge. Yes where someone that we think is worthy of being dismissed, even out of our piety, actually, yes. th- that, that encounter is supposed to change us. I'm always, it's interesting to me, I don't want to go on a whole rant here, because then we have the time, but just how when people become really hyper-literal and wooden about how they interpret scripture, that sometimes, that, you know, there, there's this sort of posture that develops out of that, where it's as if all we need to know is the word of the text themselves, and so long as we know that, then our interaction with real life flesh and blood people isn't supposed to shape us in some way. Mm. You know, like all that we need is just to kind of, is, is to know the content of the text in black and white as they appear. Uh, so for me, that's just so fascinating here. Mm. That part of Jesus' own practice as a person who is a devout Jew and, and who is sinless. This is the yeah. sinless yep. one. And, and Jared used this genius phrase in talking about this, since you set me up on the other, I'll set you up on this that I love so much, is that here we have, and I'm, this is quoting Jared, the sinless one teaching us how to repent. Of sin. Yeah. Like, this is the humility of our God. I have a very high Christology. And so when I think we're looking at Jesus in this moment, we're seeing the canonic love of God, that God sets up situations that Jesus, in his sinlessness, teaches sinners like us, that part of how we repent is listening to the outsider who we would be tempted with Bible verses and sacred texts from our cultural traditions to say, not you. And Jesus, in his humility, allows this outsider in his grief to draw compassion out of him. What we are witnessing in this text is all texts and all cultures transformed through the mercy of God. The command in Deuteronomy was show no mercy. And again and again, whether it was the feeding of the five thousands or about to see the feeding of the four, the text says Jesus had mercy on them in his grief, in his despair, in a time where cultures were so divided and people were so quick to write each other off because you live on that side or you look like that or you vote that way. Jesus is moved by mercy for those who we would be tempted to say, you're not in. And for me, I just find that. It just leaves me speechless. That if our Lord is open to the outsider and discerns his vocation through the outsider's challenge, how much more do we as sinners need to be open to other sinners who we strongly disagree with and show them mercy? This is a humility of our God. When we sing how great is our God, this is the kind of greatness we're talking about. This is the greatness of the cross. A God who is self-emptying. What we are seeing here in this interaction is the very nature of who God is. So Jesus in this situation. This woman comes and says this stuff in his grief. He's like, you know what? I can't get time away from my own people. I need time away from you. I know what I'm about. I need some space. Watch as the disciples respond though and silence her. And then he sets her up to the word from God to be in her lips, though he is the word of God. Are we preaching yet? I think you missed it. He is the word of God. He is the word of God. And he allows the word of God 
to come from the sister who most of us wouldn't call a sister. This is our God. This is the cross. And so when we start to enter into this text and watch this interaction and what happens next, because Jesus then moves on to a region of Tyre and Sidon, those who have their scriptures with them. We jump in at the rest of uh, Matthew 29 onwards. It, It talks about how they started bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute and others, just like it did they did on Jesus' home turf, just like when he was with his people. And now Jesus goes into the place where they were once commanded to wipe them out and they're bringing those who in their society they have no time for. And Jesus is ministering God's mercy to those who are outside. The question for us as we come around the table in a second, which is always in West City and Sanctuary, share this in common, this is our altar call every week. Jesus is present here to transform us and those parts of us that make Canaanites out of others and say, God can't work through you, I won't hear from you, you're an outsider. And at this table, the question is, and the Canaanite woman's challenge to us, is our tables big enough for those that we would otherwise write off? Is there enough bread for those we would say can't be fed? Do you want to speak to a little bit what happens in when they're in this region and the numbers that are left over? No, go ahead, please. You're, 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 you're preaching good. Plow ahead. Plow I, got I don't approval. want to interrupt this flow right now. I got, I got Jono's approval. So in terms of when Jesus was on his home turf, how many baskets left over? Twelve representing the 12 tribes of? How many tribes were commanded to be wiped out? Seven. Watch this, verse 37. They all ate and were satisfied, and after the disciples picked up seven basketful of broken pieces that were left over. If you missed it, our Lord has reversed genocide to generosity. Our Lord has changed the hatred that were part of his tradition and announced healing. Our Lord has lived out the cross in such ways that this is open to all of us. And for those of us who aren't Jewish in the room, you only get in because a Canaanite woman gets in. This is our Lord saying, Canaanite lives matter. That might be offensive to some of us. It might be offensive to some of us. Well, that's divisive. That's political. That's the challenge of the Canaanite woman. Is how do we find the mercy to engage those that we otherwise disagree with. And I'm aware that I'm Australian and I'm I'm here as a visitor and I'm prepared to be a Canaanite woman for a lot of you and that's fine. And I I pray that as we gather around the table that uh, we can be reconciled and, and we can break bread because the table is big enough and there is enough bread even for those we vehemently disagree with. And this is how God loves his enemies. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If that is heart and centre of the gospel as followers of Jesus, which apparently in this nation there's a whole heap of, we should be on the front line of healing those that others write off, of listening to those that others assume are mute. How do we love our enemies if we can't first listen to them? Um, um, I love... Jerry, and say, I love that shtick. It's great to be able to use here. Just like, so if you don't like anything I say, I'm just a crazy. Else. See, this is what I do with the hillbilly <laughs> Pentecostal thing. I'll just be like, now, if y'all don't like what I'm, I, I am just a hillbilly Pentecostal. <laughs> and just sort of like, I don't, I don't know what I'm talking. It's very, 
But no, I'm that's... just very aware that like people can have guns in this country, so I'm I'm just trying to I'm just trying to hedge my bets here. You don't like what I'm saying? It's like I'm not discerning crucifixion yet for for my life. So like I come in peace. This is um, I would love to. Um, we we do need to come to the table here in just a couple minutes, but I do want to ask you, coming in from an outside perspective. Um, Perhaps you're not aware of this, but you know, here in the United States of America, we're not working and playing real well together these days. Um, just the level of kind of entrenched division between us, and I find so often that even those kind of political, and we, I've talked about this a lot here, that those kind of political entrenchments then, often, it, for those of us in the church, can even become more determinative for us mm. than our baptism in terms of our own sense of identity. Our, mm. own, our own need to kind of have an us versus them is often shaped uh, kind of around the battle lines that are sort of being mm. dictated to us by this cultural moment that we're in. So I would just love any perspective you could give us as mm. one who does come from outside in terms of, and, and actually we chose to call this message, in fact, Healing the Hate, and, and in terms of how you might imagine mm. theologically that might look for us here to mm. heal, to be people as ambassadors of the gospel and of the message of Christ's peace to be peacemakers specifically in this particular moment in our history. Yeah, and hanging out with Jono and hanging out with you lot, or uh, all y'all, did I get that right? Yeah, well, well All played. things to all people. Um, <laughs> um, that's an added bonus. I'm actually here because your nation has these incredible resources to being on the cutting edge of reconciliation. The history that is the freedom movement that gets almost minimalized when it's referred to as a civil rights movement is actually about the freedom of all people, not just our sacred text, but there are stories in this nation that we in Australia are learning from because it is so rich and you should feel so proud. I'll be honest, like, not far from the Trail of Tears, um, this whole cry of the disciples and their initial silence about, no, Jesus, not her, we've got to make Israel great again. There are things in our history which we need to repent of, but there is greatness in your story, and it's the greatness of Ella Baker. It's the greatness of Martin King. It's the greatness of Rosa Parks. It's the greatness of William Campbell. It's the greatness of these people who came down to situations where they risked their life, black and white, to see this nation be what it could be, to see a nation where everything you claim is true for everyone. In Australia, we've just had our first Black Lives Matter um, uh, demonstration in Melbourne. And the chant that was televised, that I watched while I was here, was, every life matters when black lives matter. And I, I give that as a gift because it, it seems to be that people are divided over all lives matter, all black lives matter. And what our Lord seems to be saying is like, how do we listen to those who we would otherwise write off so every life will matter? And that's why we would affirm something like that. So I, I'm heartbroken about what you're going through as a people. I really am. And I, I pray for you and I pray for your nation. But what I would encourage you is that there are things in your tradition that we look to and we learn from because they are salt and light. They are the kind of witness that God's victory, that the lion is a lamb, that Jesus does conquer through that sword that comes through from his mouth and is, he is dressed in the blood that is shed at Calvary. If we can be people of the cross, 
if we can be people who live out our baptism, if we can be people who are formed by this table and know that our our identity flows from the place where the table is big enough and there is enough bread, America can be so much better than what has happened before. America can live into what it could be. And that's my prayer for you. And on the social, that's the social end. But for us as individuals, my prayer is that you as a people and what you're doing as Sanctuary Church, that you'll be known in this city and the wider area as a people of reconciliation, as a people, regardless of where you stand, your posture in where you stand is open to others, a people who knows that God sometimes is so humble that he allows the word of God to come from the mouth of a Canaanite woman. And what I know from you already, there are so many beautiful signs of that already. So I just want to encourage you in it. It's beautiful. I'm thankful for your witness. Please keep looking to our Lord and taking up our cross. Well, we really, we really have to close. This is not you keeping things open. It's me, and we do need to come to the table. But I love what you said, too, just as we've been talking the last couple of days about how, especially with the kind of political divide being what it is right now, that kind of wherever people come from, what it looks like then for when we talk about otherness, it kind of moves depending on where you're standing. So if you're a Republican, how you're able to receive and serve Democrats, if you're a Democrat, what it looks like to receive and love a Republican, but being very intentional about those things. Incredi- like Our baptism is emptied of its power unless we can love those who are different from us. Otherwise, our description, Christian comes second, and the cross comes second. There's no way to live in resurrection power without going the way of the cross. We've got to all be challenged wherever we stand on the spectrum to stand in ways that are open to those we disagree with. And so maybe we'll finish with this. I have a dear friend, Pastor Tracy Blackman, who's from Ferguson, and she has been on the front line of all of that. She has wept with the families of those who have lost loved ones, and she pastors them. And yet I look to her life and her example that while a certain convention was going on this past week, she went down there not to demonstrate, not to protest, but to give out cupcakes and lemonade to those who would write her off. Now, I don't know what does that to you in your hurt that you can be an agent of healing other than the cross of Jesus. That, that, That takes Jesus. And that's what we are called to. And it's hard. And it means forgiveness. But forgiveness isn't an optional extra for us. It's the center of the gospel. And I am so pleased that I'm worshiping with the community this morning where the table is at the center, where you can come and receive from his nail-scarred hands a different way of being in the world, that you can come and drink of the life that brings people with the same blood together regardless of the color of their skin. That speaks of the gospel. So this morning I offer up that story from Pastor Tracy to teach us that kind of humility that we can hear from the Canaanites in our midst. That's beautiful. Would you give a hand to Jared, please? Thank you so much, my friend. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.